The 20th century that has just passed was an incredible century for women, especially for progress when it has come to women's rights and uh, opportunities for women. Women in the last century in North America gained the right to vote, were able to enter the workplace and to function as equals alongside their male counterparts. Women also were able to attend schools, higher education, and today there are more women generally speaking, who have higher academic achievements than men do. A lot has changed in just the last 100 years. Yet, there was a paper published at the prestigious Wharton School of Business entitled, The Paradox of Declining Female Happiness, and across the board, not just them, it showed that subjectively speaking, oddly enough, women are now more unhappy than they were 40 years ago. Now, although feminist doctrine and teachings and ideology ruled for the larger part of the 20th century, many feminists today actually have begun to openly critique as they have reflected on how that movement changed and continued to evolve. And uh, many of them actually have become forward actually about where they think damage has actually been done to women through these teachings. Andrea Tantaros is a Amer prominent American political analyst who wrote an article entitled Women are doing it all themselves, so why are we so unhappy? She noted that feminism actually fought for the equality of women, but also wasn't content to do just that. It also fought for equality and sometimes superiority, largely, she says, at the expense of men. It turned relationships, actually, into power struggles instead that, she writes, destroyed the intimacy and ultimately respect, making it largely impossible to harmoniously coexist. And the interesting part that she wrote about is that men actually fought back against this, quietly instead choosing to opt out of marriage and now even out of dating altogether. See, Tantaros actually isn't alone in amongst the high-profile women who have begun to critique the old doctrines of feminism. Others like Beyonce, for example, the CEO, COO of Facebook, and others who have dared to speak about how essential their spouses to, essential their spouses to them have been vilified, actually, by those who continue to espouse these doctrines. Tantaros, at the end of her article, actually confesses, my life has actually gotten exponentially better since I surrendered my independent streak to my worthy and my doting partner. Sure, I can pay my own bills and open my doors, but quite frankly, I just don't want to anymore. And she concludes, really, to have it all, you have to stop listening to feminists and start, start listening to your gut. Now, I think that's an interesting statement out of a very strong woman who is featured on the news and is controversial. Those are very bold words. Um, I think there is there's truth to what she is saying. Stop listening to the feminists, but I don't think the solution is to start listening to your gut. I think a better solution, actually, is not to search around in all these different places looking for who is right and so on, but actually to turn to the Word of God. We can go forever in circles. Who's right? What should we expect? What should a woman want? What does it mean to have a successful life? What does it mean to be a worthy woman? Those are all questions that every civilization and culture has tried to answer. But the Bible also has an answer for that. And the Scripture's picture of what makes a fulfilled man and what makes a fulfilled woman is acultural, atemporal, and is true for all peoples and for all time. A good woman, according to the Scriptures, is a God-fearing woman. And it's my hope today that as we unpack what God has to say about women, and widows in particular, we would see, actually, and come to value what God looks at and commends in women.
So as we go through this, brothers and sisters, let's begin by just taking this a few verses at a time. We'll do verses 9 to 10, and then we'll talk about each of them as we go along. Verses 9 to 10, let's read again together. Let a woman widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. You know, here in this text that we begin with on widows, we are actually continuing a discussion that we began last week on the first eight verses of 1 Timothy chapter 5 about women who have just lost their husbands. Now, the word enroll here suggests a sort of official recognition of these widows uh, in the church. And it's a word that suggests, you know, um, uh, an official sort of status. And it's actually used in other places for like the enrollment of soldiers, the enrollment of senators, uh, the enrollment of people even into the clergy. And I think the idea here is just as elders and deacons need to be spiritually and physically qualified to be able to surge serve in the church of God, so also do certain widows who are joining, I think, a particular order of widows need to be also physically and spiritually certified or approved and qualified to be served in an ongoing capacity by the church. If a widow has no children or grandchildren to care for her, she is priority in the church, according to verses 1 to 8, and also provided that she meets eight other qualifications. Now, Paul lists these one by one, one by one and goes through them. The first of these qualifications that he brings up has to do with age. And he says for these widows to be qualified, they need to be over 60 years old. Now, I know that there's some who have calculated that the average Roman life expectancy of the time period was anywhere between 25 to 30 years old. But the truth of the matter is, is that figure is somewhat misleading simply due to high infant mortality and the fact that many died in childhood, that number is actually skewed downwards. For people in the ancient world, if you made it past the perils of childhood, many could expect to live a longer life, 50, 60, or maybe even 70 years old. The Jewish philosopher Philo, writing around this time, said that the threshold of old age was about 60 years old, and the Romans agreed to it as well. So there's Official, how do you know? 60 years old, you're officially old. That's how people have thought even then. Now, that age varies a little bit, you know, in our culture today, 60, 65, 68, you know, or so, but nobody gets younger. And as you get older and you age, the prospect of remarriage just simply continues to go down, especially in that culture where people didn't marry for love, you know, and romantic feelings. People married largely for pragmatic reasons. So if you could not be pragmatically of assistance, the chances of you being married were almost nil, especially in older age. Now, an elderly woman, for example, who was 60 and above, with no children or having a husband to support her, was really in dire circumstances. She couldn't just go out to get a job. There were no RRSPs. She had no bank account. There was no government assistance. I mean, your children were your bank account. You want to talk about retirement package? Those were your sons that you had. So without that, you have nothing. So it's no wonder that Paul sets this age limit saying that as the body ages, you're getting old, you have no social security net for yourself, they need assistance. 
only those who cannot help themselves and are getting old. Paul says, let's look at those people and consider them for being helped in the church. Now, number two here that he talks about is wife of one husband. Now, this phrase is literally a one-man woman. And it's actually the female version of what we saw when we were looking at the text in 1 Timothy 3, discussing the qualifications of an elder, which talked about an elder being a one-woman man. Now, as we said before, some people think that this means married only once, but I don't think this is the right way to interpret that. I know the early church and society at that time applauded women who married only once, and even when their husbands died, stayed unmarried for the rest of their lives. That was the cultural climate of the time, but I don't think this is actually what the Bible teaches. I think the Bible has a very high view of marriage and remarriage and also singleness, which is not seen in any culture in the world. I think it would be very strange if this meant married only once, because it really wouldn't make sense for Paul afterwards in verse 14 to be able to say that he wants younger women to marry, remarry, have children, continue on, and have a family. I think if there was a problem with this of joining the order of widows later, he would have needed to add some fine print to say, I want you to remarry, but I also want you to understand this. If you choose to remarry, the fine print says that you will no longer be qualified to be served by the church in your old age should your second husband die. I don't think that's the point. I think the point here is it's better to understand this phrase of one man woman as being an individual who is maritally faithful to her spouse. And demonstrating marital faithfulness in her covenant bonds of marriage is grounds for the church to say later, as part of the church body, we also want to be faithful to you and to serve you as you age. Number three, yeah, reputation for good works. An eligible widow needs to live out the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ in her life. And there are four areas that the Apostle Paul wants to highlight later, and all of them really start with S, I would say. Servicing small children, serving strangers, serving saints, and serving the suffering. Four S's, I think, of service. Number four, serving small ones or motherhood or childbearing, childrearing. If you remember back in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul said that yet she will be saved through childbearing, and I know that we talked about that. Is that heresy? I don't think it is. I think the best way to understand that phrase is to understand it as a woman carrying out a natural part of God's design. The vast majority of women in this world will be mothers. Now, it means, I think, that a woman living out her calling to be a mother, a wife, in faith, in hope, and in love in a uniquely womanly way is pleasing in the sight of God. And I think this is a working out of her salvation in fear and trembling, not as a justification for her own soul, but understanding it's God who works in her both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So I don't think it's a contradiction in terms of what is saved. A woman or a man is saved by Jesus alone, but we work out our own salvation through the power of God who lives in us, living lives of holiness, obedient to the calling that He has given us uniquely as men and as women. A woman who has served the small and most insignificant in society, whether as a mother 
or as a single woman who has been a mother to others, is a woman who is worthy of being praised. She is a sacrificial woman. And Paul says, look for that when you're thinking of the qualifications of women. He then goes on to say afterwards, number five, not just looking at her family, but look, he says, also at how she serves the family of mankind. Number five, he lists off as serving strangers or hospitality. Now, just to be clear here, that Christian hospitality for the stranger is not a uniquely womanly thing. It's actually demanded of all of us as believers. If you look at Romans 12, 13, it says, seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2 tells Christians to show hospitality, basically referring back to Abraham and saying that Abraham entertained angelic guests when he thought he was just entertaining strangers, completely unaware. Now, this doesn't come naturally to us, taking care of strangers. It's far easier to take care of people who are like us and are less needy. But the truth of the matter is, God wants us to do so, to take care of the stranger. Now, let me be clear here. By stranger, I don't mean just go out into the street and find a random person that you do not know, and you grab them and you say, let me love you in the name of Jesus. You will probably drive them away. The point is not that you have never met them before. The stranger all throughout the Old Testament is an individual or a sojourner who ends up living amongst the people of God, but really having no economic, social, or advantages, or is actually disadvantages, and needs help. Deuteronomy 10 verse 19 says, Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Why should an Israelite, or why should a Christian love a stranger? Easy, because we too were also once strangers. Not towards Canada or to the United States, but we were strangers to God because of our sin. And Jesus saved us out of the land of Egypt in an exodus far greater than the Egyptian exodus that the Israelite people experienced. What he's saying here is show kindness because you too, as the people of God, were once showed immense kindness. So for us as Christians, we look to welcome not just people we don't know, but those who are sociologically and economically disadvantaged in this world, who are strangers to the systems and the functionings of our society. We serve the single mother who is overburdened and taxed in this world. We serve the immigrant who struggles with English and does not know how to fill out the forms that they need just to get their medical care and status here. You know, I love the testimony even of one of our members here who shared about how when he came to Canada, he was taken in by a Christian couple who didn't know him at all to the airport, even though he wasn't a Christian. And since they only had a one-bedroom apartment, they let him sleep on their bed while they took the living room. You know, that's, that is loving the stranger. Now, I remember one person telling me that before he became a Christian, he once had to fill out a personality assessment, and in the notes section, he wrote, I hate people. Now, I think it's funny that today, you know, as a Christian, he knows fully that he actually loves people and that he's been saved. He has no right to say anything like that anymore. You know, the reason that we are not entitled to hate people or to hate strangers is because we were once strangers to the covenant promises of God. And because Jesus chose not to continue to be a stranger to us, but to love us even though we were his enemies, you and I are saved. 
So one thing that the Christian gospel does for us is that it doesn't just say to us, go and serve the stranger, but it says, go and serve the stranger because you were once a stranger. Love as I have loved you. You understand that in your soul, you will look at strangers not just as a burden, but as a joyful obligation, knowing that God once served you. The call for men and women and for Christian widows and for Christian women, especially in their role uniquely as women, is to love the stranger. Be hospitable as Christ was hospitable to you. Number six, as Paul goes on here, serving the saints or humility in washing feet. Now, in order to apply this rightly, we need to understand a bit about the culture of Palestine at the time. It was dusty roads, you know, people wore sandals. When you came into a person's house, unlike some cultures in this world, our neighbors to the south, you don't wear your sh dirty shoes into people's houses. So if you have dirty feet, you'll be tracking mud all throughout their houses. So it meant that a host generally had to provide water to be able to wash people's feet. You can see this actually in Luke chapter 7 when Jesus goes to a home and a sinful woman comes and actually cries all over his feet and she washes his feet with her tears and then wipes it with her hair. And Jesus turns to the host and says and notes that you didn't even give me any water to wash my feet when I came in the door. The implication being there that as a part of hospitality, a host needed to provide for his guests' feet to make sure that they were cleaned in order to welcome them into his house. All this to say, though, foot washing is clearly, I think, needs no explanation, is a very lowly task. In fact, it was so lowly that the Jews had a, a law that meant that a Jewish slave could not be forced to wash his master's feet. That was a job for foreign slaves, but too low for a Jewish slave to do. Now, when you think about that and you realize that Jesus chose in John chapter 13 to wrap a towel around his waist and to kneel down and to wash his disciples' feet, you understand what he was communicating there? He was saying, I will take the position of a slave that even people in our culture will not do just to serve you. And the point is, Jesus modeled them the humility that he wanted his disciples to be able to practice in the world. And so it is for Paul, he says, look for that in a godly Christian widow. If she is a woman who has exhibited Christian humility, then she is a woman who is worthy to be praised and to be supported in her old age. Number seven, as he goes on, serve the suffering. This is the last area I think that Paul wants to address but basically, he doesn't explain why the suffering comes about, whether it's because of life circumstances or because of persecution or other reasons. The point is that the widows who were once, who served those in their distress, now should be taken on by the church to be served in their distress. This is the kind of woman that should be put on the list. And he caps all of this up with the last statement in number eight, devoted herself to every good work, which is really just a summary statement of what you are to look for in a Christian woman who is to be enrolled in a category of widows who are served long-term by the church because they have nobody else to care for them. This is not a frivolous woman, but this is a godly woman, as he says earlier, who has devoted herself to praying to God and worshiping Him day and night, not a self-indulgent woman. A woman who has made a pledge, I think, not to remarry and is praying and set her hopes on God alone. 
So if you're outlining, I put this in your outline. Number one, a godly woman's life of service to small children, strangers, saints, and those who suffer is pleasing to God. Now, just a caveat here. I don't think this means that the church has no obligation to those who are 59 years old. But it just means, I think, that they don't join this order of women who make a pledge, I think, to serve God and to not remarry and to be devoted to Him. We'll talk a bit more about that later. But the question is, you know, sure, let's, we serve other people, but yes, they can't join this order of widows if they're below 60 years of age and they don't meet this criteria. What do you do for younger widows who are, are godly and, you know, are in there in the church? Paul actually has a different set of instructions here for them. Look with me at verses 11 to 12. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. So his instructions here are, don't enroll younger widows. Why? Because when their passions, which include physical, sexual, I think emotional as well, grab at them, and it leads them to marry and draws them away from Christ, this is problematic because it leads to condemnation for them. And so you ask, wait, wait, Paul, why does this lead to condemnation? Is there a problem in terms of marriage? No, there isn't. Let me explain what I mean by that. The word there for faith or pistis in the Greek that appears in our ESV Bible, actually in most every other English translation, whether it's an NIV, a NASB, an NLT, a CSB, is actually translated as the word pledge. And I think that's actually right. And you see the same usage of the word occur in Acts 17.31, where we read that God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given pistis, or assurance, or proof, or a pledge, to all by raising him from the dead. Now, that word, pistis, that I said also means proof or pledge or assurance that is given there, is basically Paul saying, how do you know that there is going to be a day of judgment in this world? Well, God gave a pistis or a pledge or a proof to this world by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, Jesus Christ is a pledge to this world that there is a day of judgment that is going to be coming. So, I think that what Paul is saying is that these women abandoned, abandoned their former pledge, that is a pledge to remain devoted to God in old age, seeking to honor Him with the rest of their lives. And if a younger woman makes that sort of pledge, she is forced to go back on that word and that vow she has made to God if she then feels passionate one day about being married. I think that's reason number one why Paul says don't enroll younger women into this special order of widows. But there's also another reason why he says not to enroll the younger women in verse 13. We read this. And besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Now, I think this is something not just women in our world, fallen world, can understand, but everybody who struggles with laziness. 
Just imagine that you who hold jobs here, which is the most of you in this church, had your boss come and say to you one day that we love you so much at this company and we care for you and want you to know that whether or not you choose to come into work, we're still going to send you your paycheck every two weeks. If that happened to you, and you had a boss come and say that to you, how many of you would still show up for work promptly at 9 a.m. every day? I mean, how many of you would even bother to go into work altogether? I am sure that you would find something else to do with your time. I think initially what would happen is you would feel somewhat guilty, and you would say, oh, I'm so blessed, you know, this is so great that this has happened to me. I should do something good for humanity in my free time. And you would start out, perhaps a nonprofit organization, or you'd say, I'm going to volunteer. But very quickly, I think that the law of gravity would take effect in human affairs for you. And soon you would find yourself golfing and vacationing, and all of your selfless ambitions would soon disappear. This is the danger, you see, that uh, people face when they don't have meaningful, productive work to engage in, in. And this is the danger, I think, that young widows would have faced if they were enrolled in such a program. Without the natural pressures of having to work for a living or a family to serve in the household, they would tend to gossip and to words involving them in things that say they should not be involved in. I think that Paul's very wise to say here that they learn to be idlers. And it's fascinating because just as the skills of hard work and productivity are learned in this world, so also I think idleness is a learned skill. I think those of you who are younger and are addicts to social media know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not often, right? I mean, talk to people that say once they discover the joys of YouTube or Instagram, Suddenly, their visits to the bathroom, which turned were five minutes long at first, suddenly become half an hour long, wasting your time there with your phone. There are wrong things to learn, and the faster that you learn that you can get to anything that you want to consume with two taps on your little digital device that lives in your pocket and is never separated from your leg, how quickly you become trained in idleness. Yes, you learn actually how to be lazy, and you get better at doing it the more you practice it. What about gossip? Gossip, I think, is also learned. You read Proverbs chapter 18, verse 8, that says, A gossip's words are like choice food that goes down to the innermost being. In other words, what it's saying is, why do people like gossip? It's because it's so tasty. It goes right down into you, and if you keep using it over time, you become addicted to it, just like caffeine. And you can't operate anymore unless you're stimulated it on a regular basis. You forget the ability to have normal conversation with other people without another individual being put down, or you having to feel better because another individual is doing this or that. It's a drug, actually, and very, very dangerous. See, when our responsibility to work is removed, most of us don't become professionals at our passions or in good works. We actually become professional time wasters instead. And instead of contributing to society, we end up destroying it. Or in a worse case, we end up destroying the church of God. Sometimes the most dangerous thing that you can do to a person who is destitute is to give them a welfare check from the church. Well, what's the solution then for younger widows? Look with me at verses 14 to 15 here. Paul says, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, 
manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Short answer to this, Paul says, what is the answer for young widows? I want you to get married again. Now, this is not saying that as soon as you have buried your young husband, go on Facebook and change your status to single and available so the whole world knows that you should get married. The point is, the ordinary work here, the apostle is saying, is that raising kids, managing a household, is a divine antidote for the poisonous sins that you drink when you sit in the swamp of idleness and it will ultimately kill you one day. You know, for young couples who are here and newly married, I often say to them, if you want to grow in your walk with God and you want to grow spiritual muscles, you want to become Christ-fit over being cross-fit, and you want to kill your laziness problem, God is a great solution for that. It's called having kids. You know, I hang around with a lot of moms because my pastor's schedule gives me time off when most dads are at work. So I, I hang out with moms and I listen to them talk. And one thing I never hear mothers saying to one another is, you know, I thought that motherhood was going to be so hard, but when I actually became a mother, I was surprised at how easy it was. I've never heard a mother say that. Never, never, ever. And you who are moms know exactly why. Or a new wife after they've been married for the first year. I never hear them come back and say, the first year marriage was so easy because even though my husband has all these irritating habits, they're perfectly fine. We've never had a disagreement since we moved in to live together. It's, people don't say that. Marriage is two sinners coming to live with each other. You're bound to have conflict. See, marriage is sanctifying, but so are kids. You know, without a nurse or formula, a mother is guaranteed to never have eight hours of sleep for the first year of that child's life and perhaps beyond it as well. Your brain lives in this perpetual fog, you know, and your other kids make demands of you too. It's all you can do just to keep things going in the house. See, you can protect your hobbies and your personal idols from people who you only have to work with from nine to five, but you cannot protect it from little people inside your house who are no respecters of your hobbies or your idols. See, if you prize me time and your sleep, a baby will take that from you every single day. If your car is your idol, a five-year-old has no problem helping you undo your idolatry by taking his bike and riding it full speed into your car and giving you new scratches and dents on it that you did not want. See, a, only a child has the audacity to wake you up at 3 a.m. in the morning for a cup of water. Only a child has the audacity to wake up a king from his slumber, even though he's busy running a whole country, to ask for a cup of water. See, if you want to see how selfish you are, go and get married. But if you want the ability, if you want to remove your ability to be selfish, have children. They will not allow you to be selfish anymore. They are one of the finest sanctifying tools for removing that sin in your own soul. You know, my recommendation to all of you young marrieds who want to grow into godliness is to have children and allow the Lord to chisel away at your soul. I know not everybody in this world will be able to have some, and I know some will struggle with not being able to have them, but that is what God has given you in your life.
But insofar as it has been given to you, don't run away from hard things just because they are hard. God uses hard things in your life to make you look more like Him. You know, Susanna Wesley was the mother of John and Charles Wesley, who was the great preacher, and the other one was the great hymn writer in the church. And she gave birth to 19 kids. Ten of them survived, and she had to bury nine of them. But for the ten that uh, she raised, she did so with very little help from her husband. She was a very godly woman who was fully devoted to the things of God and to serving others. And she was incredibly busy, as you can imagine, having ten children to look after. The only personal time that she got was when she took her long apron and she wrapped it over her head. And to her children, this actually was a signal to them that this was sacred space, and that apron over her head became known as the tent of meeting in which she went and met with God just as Moses met with God in the Old Testament. She took the time over with an apron over her head to read the Bible and to pray, and for the most part, she dedicated two hours a day to doing this, even while she ran the home and homeschooled all of her ten children. Her apron literally was her seminary education, and she became so proficient in the Bible because of her devotion to the study of Word of God under that apron that when she began to lead informal family Bible studies on Sunday afternoons, word soon got out, and more than 200 people would eventually start showing up at her home, and at that point, she had to change venues because she couldn't keep up with it. Her resolution was never to spend more time in leisure than with God, and she disciplined herself to pray and to read the Bible despite her busy activities every single day. She was a remarkable woman who followed godly guidance rather than the idleness that was given and his satanic sin. All this to say, I think, that Paul is right when he says that to neglect the commands of God and to not live as a woman should is to stray after Satan. And those are very strong words, but I think they're right. Just as we read in verse 8 earlier, that a man who claims to be a Christian yet fails to provide for his relatives is actually a denier of the faith, so also Paul wants to point out is that a woman who does not live according to God's pattern and design and strays into idleness and laziness is actually a woman who strays after Satan instead. A woman who learns laziness and not diligence is Satan's servant. You know, I think it's really important for us to understand. I've said it over and over again. You don't need to be a Satanist to stray after Satan. You just need to behave like Satan, gossiping like him and spending your time doing frivolous things that do not help people, using a tongue that is set on fire by hell and burying your master's talents that he has given you in the ground bringing shame on the gospel and the church. To learn idleness and laziness is to study in the seminary of Satan and to work for him. See, we must never forget that even if we don't deny Jesus Christ with our lips, it is possible to deny him with our lives. Now, I also want to just point this out, you know, guys, that I don't think that this emphasis on remarrying or living as a godly woman is a contradiction with the emphasis that the Apostle Paul places on how good it is to be single. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks about those who are single, having an undivided devotion and an ability to serve God that married people simply don't have. He understands, though, that not everyone possesses the gift of singleness, even though he wishes that all were as he were, 
But, he says, if you burn with passion, marry. He says, that is not wrong. Go and be a married person. So I think in his discussion here on marriage and urging young widows to be married, this is not an apostolic command. But it's simply saying, you who were once married, who enjoyed marital relationships, who probably don't have the gift of singleness, don't go ahead and seek a remarriage afterwards. Don't give the adversary or Satan any opportunity to slander the church or the gospel of Jesus Christ because of your conduct, which might be terrible as a result of not being able to live out in a marriage. I think it's important for us to understand here that since this is connected to Satan, that really what it's saying here, Paul is saying, is that women who live as God intended for them to live function as spiritual soldiers who actually destroy Satan or the enemy's plans to harm the church. Women actually who live for God are spiritual soldiers. All throughout the pastoral epistles, you actually see that Satan is at work against the church. In 1 Timothy 3.7, we read that Satan sets snares for elders. We also read in 2 Timothy 2.26 that Satan tries to trap people with false ideas. Furthermore, he attacks unrepentant believers in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. And further, and even more than that, he actually trains demons with systematic teaching, systematic theology in what to do against God, 1 Timothy 4.11. You know, the devil and his demons attend church every Sunday, and they are very active in their own anti-Christian ministries. Yet, what we learn from this text here is that when a God-fearing woman lives out her calling as a godly woman, what she is doing is actually reaching into Satan, that prowling lion's mouth, and breaking his fangs. See, a Christian woman who serves children, serves the saints, serves the suffering, and serves the stranger is actually one of the devil's most dreaded opponents. Because a godly woman, in her humility, serving those who least are able to help themselves, strikes at the enemy and gives no footholds, no grounds for him to be able to attack the church of Jesus Christ. Honestly, a Christian woman who lives as she should, according to God's commands, strikes the enemy's powers and his strength and his weapons that he uses to assault the church of God more strongly, I think, than any UFC fighter hits. So I think a woman in the church is an extremely powerful thing in terms of destroying the ability of Satan to attack the church. I put this in your outline. Number two, a godly woman's life of service robs Satan of opportunities to attack the church. See, a godly woman is not a doormat, but her gentle service is actually destruction for the enemy's best weaponry against the church. Last thing here that we learn about the effects of a godly woman, verse 16 here. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly women, uh, truly widows. See, uh, a widow's first responders are to be her family. But when that doesn't happen, women in the church are to be the next set of responders. And I think that happens for two reasons. One is because it's natural for women who are to be managers of their home to be able to serve the needs of those who probably would be in their homes. And the second reason is that there are things that only women can do, like bathing other women, caring for them in their old age, that would just be highly inappropriate for Christian brothers to do. So when Christian women 
serve and do these things, like taking care of these women who are their relatives, they do the church a great service, and that is they actually free the church to care for those who are in need. I put this in your outline number three. A godly woman's life of service frees the church to care for those who are truly in need. You know, mothers who serve small children and you ladies who are taking care of aging mothers or parents, I don't want you to ever think that just because you are not here regularly on a Sunday volunteering in certain ministries, because of the time that you are spending over your kids or because of your aging parents or those who need your care, I don't want you to ever think that you are not serving the church of Jesus Christ. This text speaks to the contrary and says you are serving the church. And the way that you are serving the church is because you fulfilling these needs are allowing the church to serve those who are truly in need. So thank you for serving the church by taking care of your families. Your work matters. You know, church, as, as we wrap this up, I think it's very important for us to understand that though this is really a text about those who are godly widows deserving of the church support, I think what we have learned from this really is that there is a picture that Apostle Paul paints of what a godly woman should be. And a godly woman then, who has no one else to help her, should turn to the church to be her support and her help. You know, ladies who are here, God's desire for you is to be a diligent and life-giving individual, not one who is dormant or lazy. See, a career is not wrong to have, but at the end of the day, what God is going to judge you for is not whether or not you had a fulfilling career but whether you had Christian character. It's character over career. And a godly character that serves strangers, small children, saints, and those who suffer, the smallest little ones, those who need our help, is to be commended in God's eyes. You may never wield the sword of the Spirit from the pulpit, but it doesn't mean that your works of godliness won't slice and shred the enemy's plans and defend the church of Jesus Christ against Satan's best laid plans to destroy it. And though you might have limited time to serve the family of God, don't think for a moment that you are not serving the people of God as you serve others so that the church might be free. Your work is not insignificant here, ladies, but is of cosmic significance. And even here, for single ladies, if you do not have a family to call your own, you have the family of God to serve, and the Lord loves your quiet love for them. You know, for those of us who are brothers in our church, it is a joy actually to serve alongside godly women and to uphold them and to cherish them and to encourage them to be all that God wants them to be in their devotion to Him. And we serve this way because Jesus Christ humbled Himself for us. That's the reason we can have humility. We serve as slaves because Christ became a slave for us. We die to ourselves because Christ died for us. There is nothing that Christ calls us to do that He has not already done. So we serve out of joy for a Savior who paid it all for us on the cross. We can love and bear with little children when we realize that our Father in Heaven is there at 3 a.m. at night when we call to Him, even though He is a King and should not be deserved. We have that kind of access. How could we not serve those who are little before us? <coughs> Church, what does it mean to be a worthy woman? The world has one thing to say, and in 20 years, the world will have another thing to say. But God's word is timeless, and these are his instructions for you. And at the end of the day, if you follow his commands, you will enjoy your master's pleasure as he looks at you and says, welcome 
into your master's rest. Well done, good and faithful servant. You know, for those of you who are young men here and you are single, I would highly encourage you to look not for gorgeousness, but to look for godliness and to redefine what you think about when you think about women. Some of you here may actually be sitting next to a godly woman, but you pass her by simply because she does not meet your expectations of the other things that so entrance your mind. Are you interested in godliness or your own thoughts about what you want? Learn to love your sisters here in this church and to value what God values. You know, ladies, those of you who are here, you may never be educated enough to achieve your career dreams. You might not find the relationship that you were looking for all your life that you so badly wanted. But what you can have here, as the Bible says, is you can have the eternal pleasure of God over your soul. And this is more valuable to you than any career, than any love relationship or anything else in the world and will never change from this time forward and to, into eternity. There is no lover or no greater master to serve than the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know he cares because he gave it all for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much, God, for saving us. Father, I thank you that you are a God who has redeemed womanhood and manhood and showed us that a woman's glory does not lie in her intellectual achievements, career advancements that can be taken away, or beauty that fades over time, but rather in simply submitting herself to you and living for you. Father, help us to see, O oh God, the beauty of sisters, O oh God, who serve the church of Jesus Christ quietly by taking care of those, O oh God, who are needy, and so that the church might take care of those who are truly in need. Father, I pray that you would encourage these ladies who do this today in our world and remind them that their work is of cosmic significance and pleasing to God. Father, I pray that you would help us to serve the widows amongst us who desperately need our care and who have served faithfully the name of Jesus Christ, O oh God. Let them now be beneficiaries, O oh God, served by the family of God that loves them and honors what you honor. Father, would you help us to be Christ-like in all that we say and in all that we do? So my Father, you who see all things and know all things, help us to live men as men, women as women, according to your law and to your principles, following the man on the cross, Jesus Christ, the perfect human being, who modeled for us infinite love, infinite forgiveness, joy everlasting, and mercy unparalleled. So we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.